Holy shit, here we are. Yeah. Still still kicking it. Still we are it. managed to survive. Welcome, everyone. This is episode 20 of Room of Requirement. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And uh, a podcast dedicated to resilience and reason. In the time of Trump. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I really love that so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good tagline. It's not at all terrible. It takes the anxiety way off, too, because I know fuck all about resistance. <laughs> uh, but resilience, <laughs> that's something yes, I, I, yeah. I, I definitely uh, understand and can can uh, help out with. Right. How to survive terrible things. <laughs> um, speaking of which, how you been, man? It's been a little while since we've sat down and recorded. Yeah, we yeah. We live in the same neighborhood, so we see each other often enough. But uh, to sit down and have a rap session has been a little while. Yeah, it's it's good to see you. It's good to be yeah. at this table again. Right, in absolutely. This, in this room. Uh, I guess, uh, how you been, man? Not bad. Actually, yeah. pretty good. Just yeah. working a lot uh, and, uh, you know, trying to stay sane. Uh, trying to, I, I can feel the wear setting in, like the of you know politics, like yeah. the, the marathon of it setting in for other people. Right, you know? I can feel people getting ground down. Yeah, and I feel pretty good. Okay, like, that's something that you know what I mean. It feels like ah, now is the time when like a lot of the foot soldiers are eliminated in both armies, <laughs> and you're, you're down to the people that like right, right. you know the carrion birds ready to like swoop in and right. Like, pick clean the bones well i mean at some point i mean with the level of kind of volume and and the frequency and just the torrent of like shit that rains down from the trump administration uh i think most people assume that at some point we would all become inured to this right like uh, our hackles would be up or we just we'd become numb i think um to this torrent of terribleness yeah um but I don't know if that's set in with you, but I think in the, and maybe what I think when Trump was uh, elected in the beginning, like there was just like this flood of news on Facebook and like people were all of a sudden becoming very politically aware. We started a podcast. It's <laughs> true. And, <we> did. Um, <laughs> and um, I don't know. I think things may be dying down. Is that your perception or? My perception is that the easy fruit is no longer there like people are not getting the same returns on writing clickbait articles and like provoking people into conversations and yeah that's good like i'm glad that uh, that it's not as fun to talk about politics as it was uh in the immediate aftermath of the election and the run up to it because that makes the conversation more adult and more substantive and more like something i can get behind right yeah i think it's it's about okay well what are what are our tactics yeah uh, what do we hope to get? Like having real conversations rather than how do we impeach Trump immediately? Yeah. Or I guess the other side of that is like why the Democrats won't just won't lie down and die, right? Yeah. Like I guess. So um, I think you're right. I mean, all of this coincides with a relatively, I guess it's been a few weeks. So a uh, few weeks of just horrible shitstorm coming from the administration. Yeah. So. Um, uh, so I, like when you stab a wild animal and it just like thrashes, <laughs> yeah. you know, trying to kill you. <laughs> um, so I guess the question is like, uh, with we've talked a little bit about this, but with all the kind of crap that's coming from the administration, whether it be uh, the Russia investigation or Trump's own kind of nonsense, uh, Twitter nonsense, um, how have you been handling? The yeah, news? yeah, no, that's I mean, to make to make it personal. Yeah, uh, and it's it's. 
it's caused me to remember. Like I feel I've got. I was worried about this happening, but yeah. now that it's here, it's yeah. just like I'm. I'm into it. Right. It's, it's. I feel almost exactly the same as I did now during the last seven years of the Bush administration. Right? Okay, I'm back to whatever like shell and armor and like you know whatever like emotional resources and you know like. Uh, dark magic that I, you know, <laughs> had to stay right. sane during that whole bullshit. It just feels like I'm back to it. Like, okay. it, we're, here we are again. Like, this is what it looks like. And it's not, it's terrible, but emotionally I feel similar to that. Right. Uh, um, I had a quick question, though. Yeah. Uh, do you, actually, since we haven't recorded this podcast, did you find not doing the podcast, um, uh, better for your sanity, or do you feel like worse for <laughs> no, your sanity? No, worse, worse. I like here. I like yeah. talking to you. Yeah, yeah it's. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times this podcast is a little bit of uh, sort of therapeutic. Yeah, definitely therapeutic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, we have we have no one else to bounce off. from. not certainly not uh, uh, in a way that is like mutually fulfilling. <laughs> right. Can definitely unload on people and watch them crumble. Right, exactly. <laughs> but um, it's nice to have someone to bounce stuff off. Yeah, of enjoys it as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else going on? Like, how's your life other, uh, otherwise? Yeah, not, you know, just reading a lot and working a lot and, yeah. you know, just trying to get stuff together. That's kind of always where I'm at. I, I think I'm a little bit of a workaholic. But, yeah. yeah. How about you? Like, are... uh, Things have been pretty good in general. Uh, it's been, yeah, pretty good. I've been working a lot. I think this month in particular, I've just been working a lot. So I finally got, like, a weekend off. Um, so that was pretty glorious. I didn't do anything like exercise. I took myself to a movie. Um, <laughs> What'd you see? Uh, I saw Baby Driver. Okay. How was it? Uh, good, not great. <laughs> okay. But enjoyable, <laughs> but like flawed for sure. All right. Well, I'll see it maybe someday. Then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so I, I sort of finally uh, treated myself after, which has been kind of three or four weeks of just kind of nonstop working. So that yeah, was good. It was good. So that brings me to, so the Bush administration, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah, I was 20-something. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Sure. so my, I guess my question is, like, how how did you get through that? Like, if we're sharing, like, resilient stories. Right. Oh, that's a good question. So how did I get through that? So, so my experience was that in 2001, right, I was actually working downtown. So, like, I was kind of at the site of the terrorist attacks. But I think in some ways that my... I didn't let politics get to me as much. Um, and I also had a job at the time. My job was to write about the economy. So I was able to really think about politics in a way that I thought was really helpful. And, and we would talk, and my boss at the time was a Republican. So we'd have a little bit of a sparring match um, in a way that was really good for me and also for him. And like we would tease each other about what was going to happen. Um, so I, I had a very healthy outlook. I thought of George W. Bush as being incompetent. Yeah. Um, but not egregious. Right. And I never looked back on the George W. Bush presidency as being anything that was great. Uh, I thought he was a bad president, uh, but I don't know if it really wore on me. In the way that I, uh, I, I don't know, for some reason Trump is far more resonant, right? Like I think as, as far more egregious. I don't know, for some reason I was able to walk away from politics, like I, and except for the immediate impact of something like September 11th. Like I think I had a... a, a a pretty happy kind of life at that point um and uh certainly stable and so like that's why it didn't really affect me um not to say that my life isn't happy and stable now it is um but for some reason now politics has become more important to me and so i feel like i need to talk about it but what about you i guess you yeah no i wasn't i was it was my sophomore year of college when nine uh, eleven happened and i was at school university of texas right and i was in school with jenna bush oh we were, right we were, uh, 
she was an English major at right. the University of Texas, same as me. Uh, and it was interesting because I, George W. Bush identified so strongly as a Texan despite being from Connecticut. Yeah. I took it really personally because it wasn't the Texas I knew right. uh, being represented in popular culture, and it wasn't the Texas of historical memory of Ann Richards and LBJ and sure. even Eisenhower. Being blamed for the you know positives <laughs> and negatives of Bush, I, I definitely felt the need to like stand up and present a counterpoint as far as Texas ah. goes, and uh, it was it, it definitely affected not just me but everybody else in school at the University of Texas right. at the time because we were in Austin, right, where he'd just been governor uh, and had now come to power, right? yeah. and so we felt along with like you know Molly Ivins and yeah. a lot of people you know that we had a story to tell about. George W. Bush that people were just not listening about his incompetence and about the people around him and uh, I definitely felt weirdly Cassandra-like during that entire administration like there was a lot being said that was just ignored because it was not coming from the uh, the the left as people understood it. It's interesting to talk a little bit about how we react to politics because yeah. we're different in that way. Um, the one thing I will say is that I was really active in politics in high school. Yeah, yeah. And um, there are a couple of things that happened towards the end of high school, basically between uh, the end of high school and starting college, I, that sort of just came to a close for me. I just didn't, just a full of shit teenager. Um, I didn't really have the convictions. Uh, a lot of it happened where I went from kind of a public school in North Carolina where the battle lines were drawn very clear to me to like a very elite school in yeah. New York. Um, so that you know you can have trustafarians advocating sure, yeah, yeah. advocating for like socialism, yeah, and then right, you're yeah, like yeah. it just kills. <laughs> it sort of kill the the social circumstance just kills whatever drive you have. Yeah, no, um, so I think from about eighteen on till I don't know maybe even just starting this podcast, like I, my politics, like I don't know if I was very active in politics for that reason because I was not really sure. I think there's something about Trump that in particular is just so egregious that I need to find or I need to talk about it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as opposed to before where I, I'm someone who for many years really tried to think about it, I think about politics because it's a messy subject from many sides and definitely went through the Bush years not being as riled up, being like, okay, well, this is what people are saying, okay, this is... Uh, there are many sides to this, um, and I I really didn't play an active role at all. Where I think people who maybe were younger than me, certainly from the left, were really incensed by the Bush years, and even more so, I think maybe now by the Trump years. But that was definitely different for me. Yeah, it's just felt like a a weird kind of under siege mentality, like my entire political life with like an eight year <laughs> reprieve, you know, of of just like how were you doing the Clinton years? So the Clinton years were. A whole different kind of experience like that was more culture war like there was definitely a case to be made an effective case that there was very little difference between the right and left during those years like that was a, a those were years of like extreme triangulation where everybody was trying to like lock down the middle this is a different time politically for sure, sure. Uh, a lot of that's gone now there's way more polarization on both sides. Right. Which, so I kind of miss the Clinton years for that sure. reason. Politics was uninteresting. How's that? And culture was very interesting. Like, yeah. and people were doing, like, crazy shit. I can't, can you imagine something like Natural Born Killers being, like, a popular, you know, it's like a hit movie. Right, right, right. In, right. like, 94, you know? Yeah. yeah. Whereas now movies, I think, are way, are, like, basically all Disney movies and then like politics everybody's trying to outdo each other for being crass and full of and horrible you know, right and murderous right, right. So, 
Uh, well, I mean, did you get anything out of the Bush years on, in terms of any lessons you wanted, uh, you feel like you take through the Trump years? Just that it takes a long time. Yeah. Like, there's no easy answers. Like, everybody was waiting for, you know, like an impeachment or some, you know, as, you know, Bush was perpetrating what could some cases be described as war crimes, you know? Mm. Uh, something we can, people can disagree about, but that's way more than Trump's done so far. You know? Sure. The things about George Bush that people rarely appreciate is that there was a move towards trying to think about immigration reform. It was very mm-hmm. clear that the Republican Party was not on board with that, but there was some move towards that. Uh, I think he got a sane reform policy in 2006 on. Uh, and, you know, I mean, his famous speech that we always quote, but I knew at the time was like a great moment, was actually where he defends Islam, right? Sure. Uh, immediately after September 11th. That's yeah. like a, that is a point that he makes for maybe personal reasons, but it's it was the right thing to do at the time, and it's certainly nothing that the Republican Party is willing to do now. All right, I mean, is there any are there any lessons to be drawn? I guess from the from the resilience that was actually what took down Bush. Oh, coalition. right. I mean, you you have to think about what didn't work with your coalition. Yeah. Uh, you know, understand that politics is cyclical, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that you have to wait. I mean, you have to wait, marshal your resources, and strike when you think it's vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and so uh, a scorched earth campaign is exhausting, whereas trying to understand what the where you can show up to be vulnerable, where you can show up to be strong, all of those kind of strategies matter a lot. And it just it's helpful to think about um, who the next generation is, uh, who are the leaders who are, where do you think your coalition is weak, where your numbers need bolstering, all of that. Um, and understand that that's that's a it's a frustrating place to be right now, but there are also there's precedent for it. We tend to think of Obama as somebody who is very divisive because of the right wing response to him. Yeah. But his what he was selling was extreme decorum. Yeah. He was selling competence, not yeah. revenge. Right. And I think that when the Democrats sell competence and not revenge, they win. Right. When they sell themselves as we are more effective administrators and the government works better and therefore the economy thrives more under us. Yeah. You should elect us because we are better at the jobs that are on the table. Sure. They win more than when they are you know, do try to do the Republican thing of selling culture war and sure. and, you know, the the cutting the throats of our enemies. And, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, I, think, I think that's something to be learned from the Bush administration. The, the politician that effectively challenged the, you know, who came up out of this and who was the most resilient and therefore able to retain the values that he believed in without like going over to the dark side, you know, stayed true sure. to I something. Think, I, I think it helps that you do that you did have people like Nancy Pelosi softening out the territory for sure. Him, it right? takes I mean, both. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are multiple tactics, but understanding that. Again, you do have to have a message that is something more than resistance, yeah. and it ha- and it has to be something that can appeal um, to people who don't necessarily always buy into whatever you want to believe, right? Or don't feel as passionately about a certain set of beliefs as you do, right? So you're trying to win over people is a really important part of the political dialogue, and yeah, that's it's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about politics? Sure. Um, so it's been a couple of weeks, but let's we'll just start with sort of what's grabbing the headlines. Um, and we haven't really talked about this. So in the past few weeks, do we think that the Trump administration is imploding? 
there have been a number of missteps, uh, Russia investigation, which we can talk about, that seems to point definitively to the fact that there were meetings, which was denied up until about two or three weeks ago. Um, but also, I think uh, it's clear, at least in one case, that Trump is very dissatisfied with people that were very loyal to him. And I'm thinking in particular about Jeff Sessions. So he has and been, Tillerson, yeah. And, and Tillerson, um, yeah. but for some reason he feels that he needs to pick on Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Um, which doesn't quite... I don't understand how that works in his mind, but he, um, uh, but it is something that we can talk about that particular fight. But we can also talk about whether or not I think it's much more interesting to talk about whether or not you think the Trump administration is imploding. Well, I mean, define imploding. Do you think? Are you saying that enough evidence is coming to light that there will be some sort of? bipartisan investigation that will lead to its demise or it, are you saying that its political capital has run out and he's and become an ineffective leader the and latter i'm saying that effective leader that the policy put forth will be a few executive orders yeah uh not too dissimilar in, in terms of what we've seen um so far in in the past few months not in, in not saying the initial month of his presidency, but the past few months, a couple of executive orders, whenever yeah. he feels like it, but effectively, legislation is going to come through the Senate and the House. Yeah. In that, Policy, case, I, yeah. In that case, I'd say the presidency was stillborn. Like, it never imploded, or, you know, there was never, like, a time when it was uh, an effective legislative machine, because it, this is somebody, and a lot of people around him, who have no experience with legislation. They've never held office, crafted a bill, done any of that ever. So they're learning as they go, right? right. So the I think the question isn't is, is it imploding? It's is he learning anything? Right. Is this experience of the past six months of being an ineffective executive right. teaching him and his staff to be more effective? Right. I guess so imploding means there's no point of recovery. Yeah. Whereas or is this just do you think this is a lull? And if it's a lull, do you think what do you think the path to recovery is? I think he's not learning, but I think people will eventually learn how to work around him in order to pass the legislation they need to pass to advance okay. their Republican agenda. Okay. I think Yeah. And I think the the trick will be flattering him and tying him to victories. Sure. In order to get him addicted to the feel of achieving something. Right. Which is something that he definitely wants. Right. So this very hard thing that gave him no juice, that's mm-hmm. given him no, like, testosterone boost, yeah. health care, yeah. he will eventually, I think, all, they will all eventually walk away from this, and then they will start to juice him up with easy victories on stuff that they will be able to more easily get to a Republican consensus on. Sure. Um, so I guess there are two questions. I've asked you this before, but not on this, not on a podcast. But so if you were Trump, what would be your strategy? And mm-hmm. I guess if you were someone like Ryan or McConnell, what would be your strategy? Yeah, that's so, the hard thing because they're two way different strategies. Yeah, the, I, I, yeah I think they're two separate. Yeah. They're two separate strategies. Yeah, so yeah, we, yeah. we've already talked about this, but not on the podcast. But I'll ask this question again. Yeah. If you're Trump, what is your strategy as of this moment? Right. If I'm Trump's consigliere and I'm only interested in pushing Trump, like with a capital T and I don't give a shit about the Republican Party we go all in on populism right Mm -hmm. we basically 
you know, dismantle ourselves from the Republican Party, say, all this is nonsense, we're going to pass an infrastructure bill, Mm -hmm. and I will be, you know, Trump the builder, right? Right. We're going to build America, you know, from the ground up, you know? And then he goes from state to state working on infrastructure projects that help each state, Mm -hmm. uh, spending tons of money, going out of the ass on the deficit, saying we're going to have a totally uh, isolationist foreign policy, you know, we'll work with whoever wants to work with us in order to keep the globe safe and stable right Mm -hmm. and we're just going to spend money in america and we're gonna you know build it up again you know towers and dams and you know like farms and you know power plants whatever whatever you need you know states that voted for me yeah the the cities can take care of themselves that's where the rich elites are but we're gonna you know we're gonna you know rural electrification whatever the modern day equivalent of that is yeah uh and you know that would i think cause him to be able to be reelected in four years uh just the weekly photo opportunities of being in front of some new thing that's having a ribbon cut on its building you know? right maybe it's not built yet but it's like gonna be built there's earmarked money he's he's posing with the senator of that state right. shaking hands you know he's doing the whole obama chris christie you know rebuilding hurricane sandy but he's just with the proviso that like america has been hit by the hurricane of poor governance by the Democrats, and we're going to rebuild from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a uh, reasonable policy. I'm not sure. uh, There are a couple of arguments against it. One, I don't think the Democrats, even if you dangle money in front of them, are going to go along with it. Um, I think one of the problems is uh, with that strategy, although I think it's a good one, is that if he moves uh, to the left in terms of social spending, I mean, not in terms of social spending, but infrastructure spending, Mm -hmm. if he moves to the center, I think the temptation is to throw red meat at um, social causes, and I think that'll cause the Democratic Party to seize up. So he will antagonize. Uh, he'll antagonize minorities of any kind that he can get away with. Um, and yeah, that's a problem. I would also advise him to shut the fuck up about that. Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, given that the new political calculus is cities versus the land. Yeah. He needs to be out of the city and in the land as much as possible. Yeah. Just like, you know, trying to help out these like struggling you know, empty places. Okay. So that I think that's an excellent answer in terms of what Trump's Trump strategy should be. What do you think Ryan or McConnell or someone some evil overlord who looks over the Republican Party should be? Yeah, use Mueller as a cat's paw to box him in. Uh get nothing done until he's sick and tired of being president. Yeah. And then take over and let him go on permanent vacation. Uh, and ideally with the the plan on primarying him in four years with okay. somebody that you can stomach and that the rest of America can stomach. Okay. You know, you, you he's president, you'll be able to get some stuff done, but you want to hold on to your majority in the Senate and the House. Right. And you're not going to be able to do that if Trump is uh, the avatar of, like, horrible corruption. And, right. You know, like fucking everybody you know on twitter just energizing the democrats every day yeah to run against you you need to you need to have something on him to get him to fade right uh and whatever that can be you know any way you can to get him just like a caretaker president who everybody knows their days are numbered and we're seeing what actually is happening is a resurgent republican party that believes in you know, values and governance sure. and, like, set, you know, shrinking the deficit and shrinking government. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's 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 a strategy I would go for them. They need to they need to really work that deep state if they want to 
continue to have a Republican Party. Interesting. So what do you think the Trump administration's policy is right now? The Trump administration's policy is protect its own ass right now. Yeah. It's 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 on it's on the ropes, right? Yeah. There's no they they have no plan. They have yeah. no plan, they have no buddy they can trust. It's a family unit with a really poor uh, information gathering and information dissemination structure. Does that give you any comfort as a as a someone who doesn't like Trump? Well, it means they're very dangerous because anybody that finds a way in to you know become trusted yeah. will then therefore be the most powerful people in the country. Right. And there's no vetting of who that could be. All right. So, do you see this break? Let's say there's a break between Sessions and and Trump. Do you see this as a good thing or a bad thing? It's a hard question. I like the idea of Sessions being tied to Trump and Trump being tied to Sessions. I think they make each other look worse. They're the sum of... Whereas if they're split like that, it makes Sessions seem to have some sort of weird Southern dignity, which is false, and it makes Trump... Oh, I mean, I think he's a perfectly (laughs) dignified bigot. Sure. (laughs) Yes. There's nothing... He's not... I, I I feel like he has won the mantle of dignity. He's right. also that's terrible. What, yes, that's what I mean. Right? Yeah. And it makes Trump seem like he has some sense for cutting himself loose from this, you know, like shithead cracker who just wants to, you know, put everybody in prison and you know. Right. I I I think uh, unless Trump moves to the center somehow, unless yeah. this presages some move to the center. I don't know how Trump gets out looking good at. Back to as consigliere for Trump, yeah. he's definitely got to go all in on weed legalization. That's got to be something that would be, you know, like huge as, yeah, far I as mean, keeping I, him in office. Right, right. He can decriminalization he, anyway. Yeah, if if his beef is something deeper, if it's a policy issue right, yeah. with Sessions, or uh, then I think he can he can make something out of this. Yeah, yeah. Shit stew. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, otherwise, I think it's a shallow own right. If like, he's it's just a shallow policy, to, yeah. if he's just trying to avoid Russian allegation, yeah. uh, then it's it's a really bad thing because the right is a little ambivalent about Sessions, but in general, I think they agree with Sessions, especially the hard right. Mm-hmm. And I think he has become the symbol of what a Republican nationalism looks like. like also, it boxes him in further if he can stay if he just has no bone in his body that allows him to be loyal to anybody that's right. given him their career you know? right who is gonna do this over and over again right. christie you know sessions it, it's gonna is this just gonna get comey is this just gonna continue or right. people who have at least you know provisionally shown some kind of loyalty are right. punished for it forever their careers are ended uh, what incentive is there to continue to join the trump train yeah i think it's uh uh, and yeah, unless there's some sort of policy shift, I don't know how he how he saves this shit show. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm. Who do you think would be a replacement for Sessions? I think there are enough people. Um, I think, you know, whoever they're floating, I think is is not up for grabs, right? Like, or they're just not going to be willing to fill that position. Whether it be Ted Cruz or Rudy Giuliani or even Chris Christie, I think uh. maybe Chris Christie. Uh, would do it. I think he's been boxed out. Um, I don't. It would know. neutralize the sense of Trump is never loyal to. Right. If you got Christie in there, it'd be like, oh, we're, we're paying this guy back. Yeah. yeah. He could him. he could spin it in a better way. Yeah. I think Trump and in particular Kushner don't like the neither. But then like. he cuts Kushner too. I think he might have to eventually. I think Kushner may be cutting himself. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, I'm not exactly sure how he's going to do it, but uh, the way there were some pretty good. Um, 
there's some interesting commentary, I think, from Ben Wittes, who runs the Lawfare blog, about Kushner's recent statement um, in terms of Russia and how it is uh, a statement that says something uh, that made Ben Wittes, who's a pretty good analyst about these kind of things, make me think that at least at the surface, Kushner doesn't have anything to hide, and he's preparing himself a way of exiting Mm-hmm. The administration, yeah, yeah, yeah. throwing throwing the trucks. Well, he on said, the bus. Uh, "Well, he's." I think that the statement itself reads a lot of "I don't know anything." Yeah, and don't ask me. Yeah, but here's who you should ask. <laughs> right, right. So I think it, it, there, he's putting a little bit of a moat, or he's he's throwing a fence around himself, or something. He's putting up a barrier. Um, so uh, maybe Kushner bails on that admin, on the administration. Um, I think he's a uniquely uncharismatic person as well. Yeah. Uh, listening to his voice for the first time ever. Yeah. It's, uh, he has an upsettingly thin, whiny Jersey accent. It's not patrician at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, and I guess a, a Jersey patrician, patrician accent sure. is like Tony Soprano. Yeah. That's, that's what I expect. Um, I don't know. I, I, You know, there are a lot of talk about how the cabinet works in the Trump administration and how the, what the wings are. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a... There's the family wing, um, and if and if Kushner goes, that wing is, I don't know. Under uh, it's it's really, um, uh, I don't I don't know what the center is because Kushner goes Ivanka. He doesn't really have that much more family in in the administration. So the problem is he's also picking a fight with the Bannon wing, mm-hmm. and so I don't know where that leaves him because that means that all that's left is the Mattis wing, right? Um, or maybe the establishment Republican wing. Yeah, which um, I believe is what they want. They just want yeah. Trump to be a figurehead on uh, everything bad while they do everything Well, good. establishment Republicanism. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I guess, uh, so to me, I guess if I had to trade off establishment Republicans versus nationalist right-wing Bannon Republicans, I'll make that trade. Yeah, it's a better trade. Definitely. But it still sucks. Yeah, it definitely um, does. Uh, well, since we brought it up, I mean, where, where, what you're thinking on Russia right now, um, and just politically more than anything else. Not that whether or not, uh, we, I don't know if we uncovered any real news, but politically, where do you think this is going? As far as, what do you mean? There's, uh, what are the ramifications? So given what we know now, what are the ramifications for the presidency? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sort of Damocles. You know, mm-hmm. you got Mueller's office. Like, yeah you know, slowly acquiring more and more information and, and, you know, like leading to clearly some indictments. And yeah. There's no reason for this strong or vigorous of an investigation without that at the end of it, right? right. Uh, who, where those indictments will come and who is, will be implicated is, I guess, any, anyone's guess. Right. But it seems like if I had to pick, it would be, you know, Manafort, mm-hmm. uh, probably Carter... Page Flynn Flynn possibly yeah uh, and then people we don't know about probably some pretty shady Russian mob types who are already involved in some right. nefarious business or another that are now being tied to political operation and they will probably either be deported or you know uh, yeah. put under arrest on America at least their names will be known uh, I, I don't think we know who they are yet. I think there's an organized crime element to it that is uh, has, has yet to be revealed right. to the public at large. Right? So uh, let me put this out there. I actually think that Mueller, the specter of Mueller, yeah. and the investigation is the perfect way 
to troll Trump, right? Sure. Who himself yeah. is a troll, right? Yeah, like, yeah. it takes up his energy. And whatever we've spoken about, I think, so far, it shows that he doesn't really have a strategy. It's that he's so worked up about this Russia investigation that he doesn't know what to do. He's just flailing out. He's just lashing out at anyone he can. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a perfect way to... Uh, Troll Trump. Yeah, it's an, it's an empty tabernacle as well. Like, right. To the extent that he doesn't know what's happening, right. what's going on, he's afraid of the god in this box. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it also goes back to something that we were talking about earlier. It is a respectable way to troll Trump, mm-hmm. right? Like we can say, like, okay, well, we're backing Mueller. Yeah. We don't need to have like I don't know. You know, you don't you don't need to throw water at a Fox correspondent's face, right? Like I mean, this is a very good way to troll Trump. Right, I mean, and it's something that communicates competence. Right, we are we want the government to work. We know that it happens. So this is something that I think is like the perfect way to troll Trump. It's also an American institution that right. is beloved, like the show Law and Order. Yeah, you know? like we love that show. Yeah, and the invest that you know who you you don't want you don't want the show to be to end before there's like the, the, the big reveal right. before the third act big reveal. Right. Uh, and the one thing that I saw that really crumbled in the past couple of weeks is the fact that there were it's not just the never-Trumpers that were criticizing Trump, but once you show that there was an actual meeting, it's very clear that Trump lied about that, Mm. and a lot of people were close. And and now the facade or the support of people who are loyal to Trump... Who put themselves out there saying, like, this never happened. This never happened. They 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 have to... fucked over. Yeah, they have to walk back. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. they have to walk back. And it's... It has been Trump's MO to screw over people who are loyal to him, to people... And if you trust him, that is on you, right? Uh, He just doesn't have a great track record with any of that. So um, I think it's also for such low stakes, and it's for stuff that was going to come out eventually anyway. Right. There were so many people in that room; one of them was going to crack, and it's not like they were all, you know, being paid off. They were. It was just an insane thing to lie about. Like, right. That's eventually coming out. There's too many people there, you know. Right. And one of them was just a fucking music promoter, you know. Yeah. Like eventually he's gonna what what possible all you all those assholes have Twitter accounts. Yeah. Right? Like yeah, it's yeah. an oversharing <laughs> world, right? Yeah. This so that's gonna, that's the thing that's deranged to me is they must have known that eventually this was going to happen and they allowed all these people to carry water and lie for them anyway. Right. Is, I, I, yeah, and I think this is dark. a lot of... And this is a lot of, like, holding on to the the tiger, right? Like, mm-hmm. you just don't know how to get off, right? Because yeah. you know you're going to get mauled. And I think there was a... There's an ethos that was set up early in the administration that you have to lie. You, you follow this lie. The lie becomes the truth, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think this has just been a destructive policy. So we'll see. I mean, yeah. really, I, I'm in the... I, I don't know, and I really have no clue. It could be anything. could be nothing. The Russia investigation mm-hmm. has continually surprised me with... It's confirmation of things I feel to be true, right. but I have zero proof for. So right. uh, if that continues, I will really worry about, I guess, like geopolitics and the agenda of many different rogue countries coming together. Right. I, and, I, you know, we often talk about Trump being the white OJ, right? Yeah. Like it's a matter of identification, whether you support him. And over time, what happened was that people were given a reason to like let go of OJ, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I wonder if, in a much more compressed timeline, whether or not we're giving enough reasons for people to let go of Trump, yeah, right? Like yeah, and maybe yeah. the Russia investigation is that. Like he definitely lied about it. He definitely there were meetings. Uh, the minute that he is in a meeting with a Russian, if you prove that, it's over, right? Like I mean, at, at least now you can say like, well, Trump didn't know about it, even which is really, really speculative. Yeah. Um, because it's just. It's effectively his favorite son, his son-in-law, and his firstborn son. 
um, as well as campaign manager, who were in this meeting, right? So I don't know how he didn't know about it. There's some coverage that says that he was already alluding to the fact that they were expecting to get great information. So it seems pretty clear that he would have known about it. But if you actually have some way of catching him in a lie, I think that's it. That's the release. That's when people will be like, well, you lied to me about this. This is... What we can't let happen is the OJ thing of allowing Trump to set the parameters for what the test is for whether he did it or not. Right. We can't allow there to be a glove. Right. We have to continue to hide the information that we have in order to catch him completely in full. Right. You know, without, you know what I mean? That yeah. that was. The, he, he, I don't believe his legal staff is as competent or brilliant as Johnny Cochran and uh, <laughs> the, the now bankrupt F. Lee Bailey. Sure. But he's great at what he did. <laughs> but bankrupt. Definitely bankrupt. Yeah. Definitely bankrupt. But um, uh, also a complete alcoholic and yeah. just horrible person. Yeah. But great at what he did at the time. Like yeah. That was that was the dream team. Trump does not have the dream team. In fact, the dream team is lined up against him. Yeah. Uh, we can see this as like a, a vindication for justice and the and the and also competence and experience yeah. versus in government, yeah. right? Like this is an argument. We want professionals in government. You know, the swamp is one thing, but at the same time, you want people, you can't have people who don't know how to operate right. the government. Especially if you're on the far left and you want the government to be increased by 40%, right? That's right. the thing that I would understand, like this idea of you're being on the far left and also being against the government. But right. that's what you're selling. You're right. selling the increasing of the of the government. Yeah. You want to make more of the government active in people's lives. So you need to be more on board the government being a competent institution <laughs> than anybody, right? Yeah. You're, you're carrying water for Stalin and Chavez, <laughs> you know? You need to at least carry water for for a fucking mule, <laughs> but um, that's my yeah, opinion. That's fair. Uh, anything else about politics? Uh, do you want to? Do you have any opinions on the healthcare debate, or what, do you want to handicap it? Uh, do I want to handicap it? I think it. I think it goes away for a little while, yeah. and then they bring it back. Uh, I think the idea is now they'll they'll run it through a couple of issues. I don't know if they can. You know, if they find something to pass, I don't know. I think at best they'll find something to pass. They won't be able to reconcile, and they'll just have dragged out this process. What they're hoping to do now is get an easier win, like you talked about. And I think healthcare will effectively be uh, side committed. I think the smartest thing they can do is say, look, okay, well, we need to study this more, um, and we will figure out a, a better way to do this, and then try to present a couple of easy wins. Yeah, it's a question. Do you get more of like a, sec a the thrill of sexual cruelty from actually passing something or from threatening to pass it over and over again until people yeah. are tired and sad yeah you know without having passed you still have that like you know uh weapon you can pull out any time to hurt the left right i think i think what was dumb i on mcconnell's part and a lot of republicans like this is that he was trying to he's trying to force a vote yeah. right so that he could call people accountable which is a terrible time, a terrible thing to do right now for the Republican Party because whether he likes it or not, it's fissuring. Also accountable to what? Yeah, I mean, so, so like the primary, president's wrath. I think the primary, the yeah, voters, yeah, and yeah. I think he doesn't realize how how popular health care is mm -hmm. or um, subsidized health care is at this point. 
uh, with the voter. So it's a gamble. But yeah, I think the healthcare debate will drag on until they, they and I don't know if they can figure out a way to reconcile the House version and the Senate version. So it's a long debate. As it well, it should be. It's a very big piece of the government. Just to play devil's advocate, I think the best way to get it off the table is to pass something, anything, and just declare victory and move on. Yeah. Like, it doesn't, it'll be something extremely minor that yeah. will, as, as long as it makes the left mad, it has its own, it has yeah, virtue. The, the virtue of being something that seems yeah, like Yeah, they may come to do something very, very token. Yeah, like removing the mandate and then, you know, yeah. like... Attempting to just attempting to hurt Obamacare by yeah. fucking it over in a way without actually passing, not even a repeal, just like yeah. or kneecapping it in a way yeah. that keeps it from operating correctly. Yeah. So I think that's where they're headed. I think they're headed towards some token declaration of victory based upon something very small, yeah. and it will lead to argument about whether they actually did anything, which also helps them. They can have it both ways. Of like, right. look, we didn't actually kill Obamacare. Right. We just did something very popular, which was removing the mandate for having, you know, the tax penalty, et cetera, right. et cetera. That was what the people wanted, and we did that. Yeah. So now it's, you know, up to the people to care one way or the other, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think so. I think they're going to have a very short victory. Here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you want to move on to doubling down on defeats? Yeah, I want to talk about something that is, if anything, more contentious. Uh, so this is a topic that I wanted to talk to you about for a while. Yeah. It just keeps coming up, and because the Democrats are out of power, it doesn't necessarily command the headlines. Sure. But it is this move, uh, so there's the, the BDS movement, right, right which is uh, a movement to boycott Israel, right, yes. or, or divest from Israel, effectively use sort of a South African strategy on Israel, where we... We pressure companies or even government entities to pull funding from Israel because of how they, how the Israeli government has negotiated or treated the Palestinians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to know what you thought about this because I, I, I don't have a great. I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but I don't think I have like an overall. I don't have a conclusion. So first of all, not even Norman Finkelstein is for the BDS movement, right? Yeah. Not even the guy who wrote. You know the book on how the left should take itself out of Israel and yeah. supporting them supports BDS. Yeah, because if you start doing it to Israel, then you need to do it to every other country in the region. Yeah, they're all bad actors. The yeah, entire it, Middle yeah. East is one giant bad faith bullshit parade of people fucking each other over in a human rights way. Right? Yeah, there's no and. So making Israel the only problem government in the region gives faith and credit and help to other problem governments in a way that I believe does harm to the peace process right. in general or any sort of you know lasting answer to you know we don't want to pick sides I think right but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Pair back from our material and emotional support of Likud of Netanyahu's government on the left, right? Yeah. And I think a way to to find a way to do that without treating Israel harsher than we we would to other countries sure. is the path forward. Right. I I often wonder about having someone like on the right in the Sheldon Adelstein, right? Adelstein, yeah. 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 Uh, Allison, so, yeah. um, so he is a billionaire. He's an American billionaire. I think he made his money in hotels and gambling. The Sands, yeah. Yeah, and he effectively funds a lot of Likud, or he, he actually, I think he funds right-wing 
right-leaning Israeli sure. papers as well. So he's yeah, very yeah. active in Israeli politics on the right. Um, he's buddy-buddy with Benjamin Netanyahu, the current mm-hmm. prime minister, who has been effectively a huge roadblock, I think, in terms of uh, on the way to peace. Not that someone else could have solved it, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he's certainly not helping. I'm definitely in favor of BDA. You know, boycott and divestment of Adelson. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think that's that is something. I what we're kind of getting here is that if the left wants Israeli politics to move towards the left, to move towards uh, reconciliation, then sponsor rather than divest from the government, sponsor the parties or and it's a. They're coalitions, so you can sponsor a small party. Treating Israel as a monolithic block is insane. Yeah, it's, it's a democracy. It, it's a democracy, and there's there's an entire party in Israel that mimics the Democratic Party here that people just ignore and forget about. Right, because, because they've been out of power for a while. Been out of power, yeah. But we also forget. I mean, uh, effectively, Israel was founded by secular Jews. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're they're the cornerstone of that of the founding of that country, mm-hmm. and they, there's at least a strong um, strain of that set of politics in Israel and if the left wants to get involved I think it needs to get involved it's, and I think it's much easier to say like oh I wash my hands of them this is a modern apartheid and I think that's it is a complicated claim it is certainly not yeah, South the f- Africa right the founding and, and history of South Africa is entirely different than yeah. the founding and history of Israel right and within its borders within its borders it is a democracy it is yeah. fundamentally a democracy as you pointed out in a previous podcast, and you know, I needed to be reminded of this. That's where you go to when you're gay. Yeah. If you're gay in the Middle East, you go to Israel, right? Um, uh, and certainly, you can argue how much of a voice Israeli Arabs have within the Israeli government. I think there's there's a, there's an argument that maybe they aren't given enough voice, but they are certainly given a voice in the parliament and then the Knesset. Um, so that's uh, even if Netanyahu will fan the flames of, of racist politics whenever he chooses to. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I, I'm also a firm believer in, you know, moving ourselves out from under, you know, material support of Saudi Arabia in favor of trying to do more business with Iran, which Israel is definitely opposed to, right? Right. So finding a way to use American power to force this to happen and, and force this agreement and force Israel and Iran to realize they have way more in common than... Uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, or Israel and, uh, ma- and many of the Arab states, right? right? That's why they. I think that's why they don't like each other is because they're competing for the same sorts of resources. Maybe. Iran and Israel are. They're very alike. Yeah. Uh, perhaps not in their political structure, but certainly in their history and the way that they view. They're very. You know, Iran was classically a very liberal society. Yeah. Uh, it's not true now, but Saudi Arabia is classically not a very liberal system. Right. It's a very homogenous one. Yeah. So to, I think it, I think there's a, a world in which there's an Israel-Iran-Qatar front right. that slowly erodes some of the hegemony of the Arab states as right. far as the monolithic cultural Wahhabi and Sunni Islam in the region. Yeah, and I think this is... That creates a financial powerhouse in yep. the Middle East, honestly, that would be destabilizing possibly to Europe. Yeah, I mean... Because the I, weather's better, but... Okay. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's generations down the road. But yeah. what I think is important, both for American policy and now for the left, is that they engage in a way that tries to build the seeds of democracy. Absolutely. And, and 
human rights and civil rights. Yeah. And that goes for engagement with Israel, uh, that goes with engagement with any other Middle Eastern country. And I think it in, it's sort of incumbent to try to think about how we work towards building institutions within Palestine that support democracy that aren't horribly anti-Semitic, right? Like, I mean, I mean, genocidally anti-Semitic. So that is what I think in our time in the woods, that is something that, that the left could work on. It's yeah. a smarter foreign policy that tries to think about how do we build the building blocks, how do we move towards creating building blocks of democracy and human rights. Yeah, both these societies use the, the war in order to crush their reasonable people on the inside. Yeah. And that's the problem. We need yeah. to be using a, the American umbrella and shield to support both of them. Right. You know, uh, both people in Palestine and Israel and everywhere yeah. in the Middle East that want some stable, liberal, democratic solution sure. to the problems they face. Yeah. Secular, liberal, democratic people in the Middle East on all sides yeah. should be supported with anything you know we can give them in America right. or, or Europe or China. Anywhere that benefits from a stable Middle East, yep. Russia does not benefit from a stable Middle East. So that's important. <laughs> it to really doesn't. Mind. It really doesn't. Yeah, it drives oil prices. Uh, yeah, up. yeah. Uh, anything else for doubling it down on defeat? Uh, no, that's a that was a uh, far less hard conversation than it yeah, ever. Yeah, I think uh, I'll just take this moment because I actually think that in some ways you have brought me to a more pro-Israel or made me appreciate over. Uh, what Israel means to the Middle East, I think, over the course of doing this podcast. That's something, certainly, that I I think you've opened my eyes to. So, uh, And, yeah, I think that's... I really appreciate that. So I think maybe you, you've you won that argument. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, when the next atrocity happens in the fight, <laughs> I, I guess I'll have to, you know, take credit responsibility yeah, for sure, that, too. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, uh, uh, hey, all right. Uh, the next section is uh, Outside the Bubble, where we like to talk about influences or things that we're reading or imbibing. Uh, from the media sphere that is outside our liberal elitist bubble in Jackson fucking Heights. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> you want to start? Yeah, yeah I want to start because I'm actually really enthusiastic. Yeah, about you this. have a really good one. So, so um, I uh, just finished listening to, on Audible, uh, The Devil's Bargain, yeah. um, which is a book by Joshua Green. Uh, he writes for Bloomberg Business now. I think he wrote for The Atlantic. But what he writes about, what this book is about, is the relationship between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. Um, and it is very good. It's not that long a uh, listen or a read, um, and I'll say it's technically not outside the bubble because Joshua Green isn't necessarily a Republican, but I think it paints, a, I think it does an effective way and a, a reasonably balanced way of painting a portrait of both of these men. Um, there's also, if you don't want to read the whole book or listen to the whole book, there I think there's a Fresh Air um, interview with Joshua Green where he sort of hits the highlights. But the idea is, I think, that according to Mr. Green, that effectively Steve Bannon came in and he saved the Trump campaign. And uh, the reason that he did this is because he believed that Trump could be a vessel to put forth a set of beliefs that Steve Bannon has held for as long as we can tell. It is this, what we talk about, ethno-nationalism. is a very America-first nationalism. It can get ugly. It is certainly... Uh, Islamophobic. Mm. Um, it is not necessarily racist. It's not necessarily anti-Semitic, but it's certainly uh, a notion that the West is at war with Islam, um, which was founded very early in a sort of right-wing Catholic day school that he went to, yeah. or something like that. And Steve Bannon is actually a really interesting guy. It, paint, uh, it really does kind of a, a very good job of, of showing his trajectory, and he's a very bright 
successful guy in a, in a lot of fields, um, uh, but he's had this core set of beliefs. And so the way that Joshua Green talks about it, he's like, oh, well, I'll, when I first met him, he met him in Washington circles. He thought he was just like a Washington grifter, just the sleazy guy who would bend with the wind. But he realized that Steve Bannon is a true believer in these ideals. And this is, and he saw Trump as sort of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to maybe put forth these ideals. And really what he wanted to do was have Jeff Sessions run yeah. as a way of advocating for these ideals. Um, and Jeff Sessions said no. And since we're bringing up, we've already talked about Jeff Sessions, but Steve Bannon was the one person who was like, I'm going to go to Jeff Sessions to, to have him endorse Donald Trump early on to give him some sort of legitimacy because we can we can bring Donald Trump to Jeff Sessions' point of view or, or Steve Bannon's point of view, this hard nationalist um, point of view, anti-immigrant, all of that. Um, and that's what Steve Bannon really brought. So, uh, so that was the hope on Steve Bannon. He, in a lot of ways, he probably saved the campaign. He, but anyway, so the devil's bargain is that Steve Bannon helped salvage this administration or the campaign in the hopes that he would put forth a, a candidate that would support his, his very strongly held viewpoints. And Green, he effectively concludes that he got played. Mm-hmm. That Steve Bannon got played. That there's no reason to believe that that Trump wouldn't abandon those ideals as soon as he feels like they're no longer supporting him. Um, so uh, and so, it's a really interesting part, portrait of of a moment in that campaign and a moment in, in American politics. Um, but it's totally fascinating. Does he suggest that Trump is an empty vessel, or that there's uh, some other agenda that he has in mind as far as implementing? He doesn't say he's an uh, an empty vessel. I think there were probably ways that uh, Trump could had some sympathy. Um, what I think is clear is that Trump himself has a great political instinct or a great ear for an audience. Mm. And so it's not political because he wasn't a politician until 2015. Sure. But what he was able to do was, uh, if you sort of, you can do this, you can trace his Twitter history and see like he was on this side or that side or this side or that side. But what he would have what he started to hone in on were set of right wing idea ideas that got him the most feedback, and he realized that those were popular ideas, and he swam towards that. So he is someone who can who can both shape an audience, but also follow an audience, and he and he has a very good instinct, I think, and that's what makes him different than other politicians um, is his ability to read that audience. Uh, so I I think he's a narcissist. Who wants adulation, yeah. and the way he and so and but he seeks it out. It's not that he's a passive, per, he's not a passive body. He's not like oh, why is anyone not praising me? He will seek out adulation, and the and the way he found out to do this was to hone to, or hone in on uh, this this set of beliefs, and so that's why um, it's somewhat of a con. I think as soon as he realizes he's not. He has to do something to continue. Um, he will abandon that. And he will move on to wherever he can get adulation, or he will start to to whine about it. Or he he's completely he's an empty vessel in the sense that he will follow praise and adulation. Yeah. And so he's it's not he's not a true believer the way that Bannon is, and that's why this is the devil's bargain that I think Joshua Green thinks is coming uh, is being rent asunder. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that that's that's my recommendation. Well, I hope they both stomp themselves into hell. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, the interesting thing is that um, uh, I, 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 Steve Bannon is uh, really into uh, Hindu mysticism. Yeah, he's into lots of bullshit. If you've read Anti Fragile, I recommend, right, I recommend it. <laughs> it's just, 
I don't know. I resent the fact that you think Hindu mysticism is bullshit. But oh, mean, you think Hindu mysticism is bullshit too. Yeah. yeah. It's all. He's into Catholic mysticism. He's into. He's into anything that presupposes secret knowledge that he, only he has access to, and that makes him feel special. Well, I think he likes. Uh, we actually talked a little bit about this, but he likes the particular the cyclical theories yeah. of life, like either the generational or like we're entering the Kali Yuga, which is a Hindu concept of. Of great darkness, right? Oh, and also, like the the generation theory, the stars yeah. how like yeah. millennials and so he he made everybody read that and yeah. loves that shit just because it has this sense of like I have the true millenarian mil- facts about yeah. the future, you know. Okay, so he's been incredibly successful, and there is something about them that it, that it drives. So one, yeah, got into HBS. Sure. Two, uh, got into Goldman Sachs. So he got HBS, Goldman Sachs. Um, he built a consultancy that was really successful, and uh, he built a production company based on that. So, like, and then he built went into Breitbart. So, I mean, there are a number of things that he's done that's successful. That m- implies a certain amount of discipline. He's not a rich kid who can just buy these companies. He's like a he's like a right wing overachiever. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, right. like what? What does Steve Bannon? I guess sort of. What does Steve Bannon want? What What does he like? What I mean, like personally, like yeah. what does he want, like for himself or for like. I mean, is he is he complete ideologue? Does he just like will he only be happy if America is like, you know, this vision of his own future utopia, or is there some? Yeah, I don't know. Is I, he married? Like, what what is he personally? I just see a mess when I look at him, which is why. Like, yeah, I mean, physically, he always looks like a. But and also, just like you know, like his fa- his like home life, he's like a, a abusive person. Like, yeah, I, well, he has a daughter, right? Yeah. yeah uh, his, his ex-wife like filed charges of, yeah. like yeah 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 his uh, I think with him I, I think things went wrong somewhere yeah. in like the like mid 80s to late 80s right and like America needs to right the ship by like reconnecting with these values and understanding that we are a civilization and uh, that needs to go through the world uh, with pride and a little bit of bullying I think I mean it's it's also like a really like he has a deep kind of punk aesthetic to him like he he really has a very fuck you attitude towards a lot of what a lot of institutions that I would see as right wing but he would see as like populated by global elites right Right. so it feels like he is in some ways less competent than Donald Trump which is saying something, but oh, I would, I would not read it that way. Yeah, yeah. I would not read it that way because Donald Trump has the superpower, yeah, being able to read the room. Like I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I think they just have different skills. Like Steve is actually a pretty good analyst, whereas Donald Trump is just an instinctive reader of of trends. Yeah, I guess we'll see. We'll see yeah. who who lasts longer. Yeah, Trump or Bannon. I guess. Bannon will definitely outlive Trump. That seems maybe, likely. maybe I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Bannon, he is interesting. Well, I mean, it sounds like a great book. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like everyone should probably read it just to know what's at yeah. stake and who yeah, it's a great it. book. I, I highly recommend it. It's pretty short. You're saying, right? like uh, like, yeah. I mean, it, it was uh, like I, I listened to it. So yeah. like it's it's a, it's not that long a book. I don't think. What uh, you had a suggestion? You wanted yeah, to yeah. Read. I just finished reading this book, Dark Territory, by Fred Kaplan, who is a uh, a, yeah, uh, I guess defense industry intellectual historian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he wrote the book Wizards of Armageddon about okay. the Rand Corporation. Right. 
Uh, this book's about sort of cyber war. It's a history of cyber war, and uh, the NSA's response to it, uh, in addition to you know the government's kind of seesawing back and forth, sure. caring about it at all, yeah, and, and the upsides and downsides of how it's fought. Right. right. Uh, there were three really interesting takeaways from the yeah. book. Uh, one was the extent to which our cyber war policy in America is based on movies. Uh, there were th- these two writers uh, who wrote both war games and sneakers. Oh, wow. Both of these films were instrumental in the crafting of our cyber war policy. That is sad. Reagan saw the movie War Games like because yeah. he watched movies every night. Yeah. Uh, and one of the movies he saw was War Games, and he sat up and re- like blew him away. And he was like, "Could this really happen?" Yeah. And he created like a fact-finding force that led to the sort of initial creation yeah. of any kind of cyber warfare organization yeah. and government. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the two guys that wrote that also wrote the movie Sneakers, which, when that came out, caused the same revelation in the NSA. The idea um, of information warfare is all from this like one speech that the villain gives at the end of Sneakers. And the NSA, once uh, the head of the NSA, uh, Mike McConnell, yeah. uh, at the time, made everybody in the NSA watch Sneakers. He's <laughs> just like, this is what we are now. We're an information war unit. And yeah. that's, that's the future of war. Right. right? is having these secrets and deploying them strategically, right. right? So get on it, right? Like, start defending our secrets and stealing those yeah. of others. Uh, and so that led to an entire reshuffling of the NSA. Uh, the other kind of takeaway from the book is how impossible uh, cyber war defense is. Like, it basically doesn't exist. Yeah. There's basically no such thing as defending a network, right? Right. The NSA attempts to sort of shore up some of our infrastructure, mm-hmm. but really the idea of the only of the best defense is a good offense is uh, that's times a million when it comes to cyber warfare. Yeah. Really, the only way we can defend against a cyber attack is to penetrate somebody else's system, see when they're launching something in order to uh, degrade and mm-hmm. and keep it from happening in the first place. Right? right. So the only way we know that, or the only way to stop a cyber attack is to know about it ahead of time and. Yeah by penetrating somebody else's network first, right? Yeah. So that's our entire NSA. That's what they do all day long is they penetrate systems in an attempt to find out when the next attack's going to hit us and what they're after, right? Okay. But what we're seeing now is a completely different kind of cyber war that is more, it's kind of classic in that it's propagandistic. Yeah. Uh, and it uses kind of legal channels, legal methods, and, you know, yeah. uh, it's all out front in order to destabilize Western democracy, right? Yeah. And there's no effective countermeasure to that yet. Yeah. Uh, it's already, it's being deployed against, uh, like, Hollywood and, mm-hmm. you know, the news media and, you know, scientific-style journalism, right? right? So how do you fight an information war? There's yeah. no answers yet. There's no, nobody has a real good solution to it. Uh, and uh, government clearly has no incentive in figuring that out right now so it will probably up, be up to countries like france and england and germany to develop the tools to fight the information war that we're seeing take place now yeah. we're probably going to lose an entire generation of advancement on this technology right of how to yeah, fight well. such things right it's just because of trump it's like yeah. it's a huge problem right? yeah we're going to be susceptible to it and just like nothing's going to be done yeah. as far as like fighting back uh, 
the other the third takeaway was just kind of speculation which i found interesting going back to sheldon adelson uh do you remember the sony uh hack yeah the big one where based on the yeah. interviewer or whatever they went in and hacked sony pictures and yeah. threatened them with releasing all this information yeah. if they let the interview happen the yeah. movie, and then they let the interview happen and then they released all this information right and yeah. then uh, well, the week before was a hack that was in some ways way bigger, but was overshadowed by the Sony hack, mm. which was the Sands. Uh, did yeah. you know about this? No, I don't. Actually. Yeah, it was very interesting. It was an anecdote in the book, and I'd, I'd never heard of it either. But uh, what happened was Sheldon Adelson delivered this big speech about how we needed to nuke Iran, right? Mm-hmm. How we needed to drop a nuke on Iran and like to send a message to them by like turning like the desert in Iran to glass. glass yeah. yeah, right. So he delivers this big speech. The speech goes viral. Uh, Iran then, in response, hacks the sands, right? So mm-hmm. they, they hack his casinos and they steal and, you know, they take over pretty easily by getting in some network administrator who mm-hmm. left his password open. And they put up on the homepages of all the sands, they destroy like 20,000 computers uh, and do like 40 million in damage. And they put up on all the sands. The homepage for all the Sands casinos, you know, uh, any threat of nuclear war is a war crime. Yeah, and, you know, uh, but which is, and, but that that gets taken down after a couple of days. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about this hack is what they also got was access to all the, the Sands high roller files. Oh, so wow. anybody who and the Sands, you know, has like kind of criminal organization style dossiers on anybody who's come through and their habits and. Yeah. You know what they've done, like what yeah. they like, yeah. what they're, you know, uh, uh, I, I guess like petty grievances are, their habits, like who yeah. they are. It's like a massive like yeah. intel dump file, by compiled by essentially criminals, right? Yeah. Who are, you know, <laughs> yeah. anything goes. It's like yeah. whatever money can buy you will right. get you that, right? In a place where prostitution it's legal. is legal, right? Yeah. So Iran has access to all of that. They stole all that from Sheldon Adelson. And if Iran has it, that means that Russia and North Korea have it yeah. as well, right? I mean, they yeah. share all the information they can steal right. on, on America, which I thought was fascinating. And I think might be a reason why we've seen a lot of the Republican Party uh, move over to supporting Trump materially. Because if Iran and Russia have it, I bet Trump has it too. Oh, uh, interesting. In some way or another, or at least has the ability to deploy it in ways that would be catastrophic to the Republican Party's leadership. I mean, it's just speculation. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, Who yeah. knows what's being done with this information? But it's right. certainly a hack that isn't talked about that seems like it should be, right? That's, right, right. That's really massive, right? Like, yeah. Iran having all this information on the world's like, high rollers that they stole from Sheldon Adelson. Yeah. Uh, that is interesting because I wonder how Sheldon Adelson was using this information right in order to get yeah. complicity yeah. Uh, for his you know goals and, and right. I wonder how Iran is using it yeah uh, anyway worth worth thinking about okay for awesome paranoid people everywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. or at least just knowing about for sure those who are not yeah. uh, um, yeah, I think that's it for uh, Outside the Bubble yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, alright so do you want to go on to random shit yeah let's do it um, so, so for random shit, I guess we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the theater. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, on the one hand, I am a theater audience. 
Yeah, never. I mean, you're the you you let, you go to the theater more than anybody I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, uh, so uh, my wife and I we like to go to the theater. We've yeah, been yeah. like a lot this summer actually, and yeah, we've seen like a ton of shows. I think we mentioned in the podcast. I saw the Julius Shakespeare Shakespeare in the Park. Um, yeah, yeah. Julius I, Caesar. Yeah. Uh, that was all was very controversial. They also did Midsummer's Night's Dream, which was not controversial, but was, in a lot of ways, better. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I think it's just a better written play. Like, yeah, Julius I think in general, it's pe- kind of didactic and you know, yeah, and it, and, and after Julius Caesar dies, it's yeah. like this gets real boring. Yeah. Really quickly. <laughs> so um, yeah, we've just been on a roll. I think it's a good time in the city to see theater that's one of the best things it's and you know like i think you might have the idea if you don't live in new york that this kind of thing is rarefied and expensive yeah like hard to do right the thing about new york is that theater is essentially free like it's hard to i mean it's you can pay for it you can pay a lot of money for it you can pay six hundred dollars for a broadway ticket or you can pay nothing for an off-broadway show or a show in the park that's free right like Right. And there's just so much crap happening all the time. And they're glad that you're there. You know, they're looking for an audience. And Yeah. And I think it's, um, yeah, especially I think this weekend and I think maybe next week sometime, we're going to see a couple of shows. There, uh, one was is in Lincoln Center, but the it was $30 a piece, which is basically two movie tickets yeah. right now. Um, and I think there's another one we're going to see that's about 40 or $50 a piece. So, oh, excuse me. Um yeah, it's just been, it's easy to do cheap theater, it's certainly possible to do free theater. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, if you're coming to New York to get away from your hellish small town that's gone Trump, <laughs> you know, you don't have to go to, you don't have to, you don't have to go to Broadway, you can, you can see great <coughs> shit in New York yeah. on the weekend and save your money for food uh, and see, you know, fantastic, competent, super well-done theater everywhere. Um, the reason why I think it's interesting for you is because you've, Actually, at some point, thought of yourself as a playwright. Yeah, that's what I started out doing yeah. as a writer. Uh, I started off thinking I would be a playwright someday. Sure. Okay. I, I guess like it was the most doomed art form, so I was attracted to it. It just seemed like the the right. least useful. You know, TV exists, right? Like, yeah. Who's writing plays these days? Sure. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess some people are. Yeah, but some people are. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was in college. I was a huge Tom Stoppard fan. So, okay. Uh, I, I guess I wanted to be Tom Stoppard. Uh, in some sense I, I just thought the work that he was doing was brilliant and didn't translate to film very well uh, there are things that yeah, you can, there's things you can do in like oh, yeah, do you play. want to explain who Tom Stoppard is uh, he's a Czech uh, playwright but he yeah. he moved to England yeah uh, and he uh, is kind of a a weird existentialist slash like humanists yeah. who uh, likes to play like language games and language structure games, games with yeah them. and he also likes he likes to pull in all sorts of things like math and science mm-hmm. uh, in his play so yeah. um, I think he's a very beautiful writer and really funny like he yeah. really gets it in and he also just knows how to work a theater. How to like? Yeah. I saw some of his plays in college and I was blown away by them they were kind of peak experiences it wasn't great performance necessarily but yeah. the script was just so beautiful that, right. that I, I loved it uh, I was also a big George Bernard Shaw fan too hence my Fabianism yeah but uh yeah so what is it what do you get out of the theater though what's uh, uh well you know I, I don't know I think it's just one of those things about living in New York City it's 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 accessible right yeah. like it's not just if it's I were, special we don't no one else really has that in America yeah. access to the theater that we yeah, yeah. I mean, it's def- it's definitely like unique uh, in America. Um, I think if I were like living in Durham, right? I mean, there would be one or two very small uh, 
performance spaces and then like a really big space that they bring in like touring companies of like big plays like uh, I think recently they they brought the Mormon one. Oh. Book of Mormon? Book of Mormon, yeah. 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 They brought Book of Mormon to Whoa, I think I'd rather see that in Durham. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know my brother-in-law's family really didn't like it. <laughs> they went inside. Yeah. I, and I was like, but, so, like, and they'll, they have, like, season tickets, so yeah. they can see any one of them. They're lovely people. They've yeah. always been really yeah, good yeah. to my sister. Um, uh, but they're religious yeah. and, cons- and conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, uh, I was like, why would you see Book of Mormon? That makes no sense. But they went to see it, and they didn't like it at all. Um but they, I think, are they South Park fans? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what. What? Um, um, to be fair, my wife didn't like Book of Mormon at all for very different reasons. Sure. <laughs> um, but uh, I think, but I think if I were living somewhere else in the country, like that's that would be my experience with theater. But here, it's it's very different, right? Uh, it's very accessible. Right? Yeah. Um, it can be very cheap. Uh, it can be very good. Um, a lot of times, it's very bad. Yeah. Um, and I think. Uh, I think I got lucky in my life uh, because I actually, just through Craigslist, I actually had a roommate who did a lot of like experimental theater and composing, and he did some really interesting stuff. And maybe I'm open-minded enough to like like some of the stuff he does, which is, uh, I guess some people would think it was weird, but I thought it was really great. Yeah. And then I just kind of kept a, an ear out, and it ended up being like one of the, one of the people he wrote with for a while ends up having a pretty big Broadway play now. So... Um, Natasha and the Comet of 1812 was yeah. Dave Malloy was one of his writing partners so um, I think maybe that got me back into like trying to figure out theater or like at least try and pay some attention to it um, I'm not saying I'm like I'm on top of the scene but uh, certainly if it's a cheap ticket I'm not going to say no um, but that's about it yeah, yeah. Well, I mean when you go to a performance what is it about theater that you get that you can't get from something else uh, I think on a very real level seeing theater in New York means that you see phenomenally talented people, right? Like, even in shitty-ass, like, uh, playing to, like, New Jersey tourist crowd musicals, you have people who could sing, act, and dance just phenomenally, like, right? Like, I mean, it's just, they're really, really talented people. Um, Sometimes that's not always harnessed to, like, make great uh, entertainment or sure. art or what or something in between, but um, we, for- it, we forget just because we all, you know, like our you know, Hollywood owns us, but like we forget that being photogenic does not necessarily make you a good actor. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, so you will see, and I think that's actually something also you notice is like people who are really like stage stars and have like a real charisma on stage don't necessarily always make make a great transition to Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think. Um, you know that's not that wasn't necessarily true. You would go back and forth a lot, uh, maybe in the fifties and sixties especially. So I think that's something I get. Um, there's a certain amount of intimacy, uh, a lot of stagecraft you don't see. Um, uh, my wife is always remarking about the staging of something because it's really it it's a pe- it's a feat of sort of minor engineering to sure. get everything yeah. uh, together and 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 uh, think about it. So um, there are there are things that if you see just a handful of plays, like you get to really appreciate. Yeah, it's it, it's always uh, it's not always a great experience, but um, it can be. It's just one of those unique things about New York City that yeah, again, isn't necessarily a, a preserve of the elite, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I would say that it isn't at all. Like, right. I think the elite here have other pursuits. Like theater, kind of belongs to the people in a weird ass way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly, 
Broadway. It's Disney. I mean, it's like it's very broad stuff. Right. You know, they're not trying to do anything rarefied or, yeah. or weird. You know, yeah. that's where the expensive tickets are. Right. Right. And all the way down to like experimental shit. Like, like a lot of that stuff's free. Like, they just want an audience. Right. You can just roll in and see some like amazing play. Yeah. For a to- for free or like a token amount. Yeah. And they're happier there. Yeah. And not to mention like all the other free theatrical kinds of performances in the city, like poetry readings and storytelling right. shows and you know that you can get in for free or the price of a drink you right know? and you're seeing some like top-notch like quality performers they're doing their thing yeah um, and uh you know uh improv. as well as improv yeah. improv too yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. we're very lucky as far as that's concerned yeah that's one of the reasons i don't think i could live really anywhere else it's, it's i think it would be hard right yeah. like i mean uh in a lot of ways even the my wife and i we live kind of an active life and we try to do this like you know, trying to keep on top of that. Like, there's no way to just be like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to put this on autopilot. You really have to, like, read the blogs and, yeah. like, take... And so it's a it's a very proactive thing. And it does it does make me... It's special. Like, you don't... It doesn't translate. No, you have to be here to see right. it. It's live, you know. It's not like the L.A. Hollywood thing of, you know, it all becomes used for something. And right. Like, that is the performance. You're seeing right. it. You know, those people love live theater and they're putting this thing on yeah. for you. And then it's gone. It's done. And it's New York kind of talking to itself. Yeah. Was there a particular style or type of theater that you really like? Uh, you know, I've done, I've been doing shows for, for 10 years, you know. Right. Like, uh, like more, yeah, but it's spoken more, word. more spoken word. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just more performance stories. art, right? It's very performance art. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so that's kind of what I've gone into. That's kind of sure. where I get my. Did you ever aspire to be an actor? No, not for one day. Yeah. It's kind of. I don't like. I guess I don't like the the fascism of like beauty being what we revere in acting. It seems like that kind of creates. Sure, I think that's more of an easy aesthetic than a yeah. fascist one. Like I think it's just naturally like, oh, that person's pretty. I'm going to trust them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just. I think there's something deep in our in our species that beauty communicates worth yeah. for some reason or another that's why people should sit 60 feet back and everybody <laughs> should wear a lot of makeup and it doesn't really fucking matter with it. you can project well it's interesting what you need to project right exactly I, I i agree with that but it's also very clear what when people have stage presence yeah. right like the difference between that and being able to carry yourself confidently sure. right um so that's another set of s- skills or attributes that can be learned but often isn't and it's 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 a that's something that i think people everybody you know that's one of the reasons why improv is good to the extent that it is i think that's something everyone should try to learn at some point right how to project and speak right and you know forensics i guess if you didn't learn it sure in junior high it's never it's never too late to learn how to carry yourself and speak effectively speak effectively also to listen listen yeah Yeah. to to participate yeah. yeah creative way creative listening and creative sure. speaking um, well do you see much theater these days I used to but I don't really unless I'm seeing like a storytelling show or like yeah. a, a show that I'm putting on or like I see a lot more of that yeah off Broadway stuff and weirder about it so I don't know what I'm missing and I don't know what I want to see or yeah, what I should see I think that's the other thing too is that you, in New York City you can miss a lot right yeah. so like I'm sure there's new experimental stuff being done mm-hmm. Uh, certainly with my old roommate there was just really interesting stuff have you seen anything particularly terrible I didn't love Julius Caesar in a way that the, I thought that was Julius really yeah, yeah. because it was so on the nose political like yeah, I was yeah, like yeah. has political theater gotten worse you would say in our I lifetime? think I think it's always been bad yeah 
And you know, I don't know, did you ever see Four Colored Girls who considered suicide when the rainbow wasn't enough? No, I have not. Um, Is it good? <laughs> stage when I was in college by like the by like an activist, and I was like, "There's not a single word in that in that title that makes me want to go see it." <laughs> yeah, right. And it's like so on the nose. Yeah. Uh, it was a big play, I think, in the late '80s and yeah. early '90s. I actually think that maybe one one of the first plays that Angela and I went to together. Uh, was pretty bad, and it was a staging of Arcadia ah, by Tom Stoffer. I love that play, <laughs> but I can imagine it being extremely tedious if not done yeah. well. It just kind of keeps going. Yeah, and it's yeah. really you have to have really good comic actors to sell that. Yeah, we on. had Billy Crudup. I I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. That that's why you're cringing about Tom Stoffer. Um, <laughs> no, I think well, so I, in. In college, I dated a woman who was really into Tom Stoppard, and I, I read him, and I kind of liked him, but I also thought, when you read him, he's a little, uh, he's like virtuosic. Yeah, pyrotechnics for its own sake. Yeah. It's I liked like, that when I was in college, though. Yeah. I, like, I think, I think it could be a college. I maybe not wouldn't like it as much. I, I get the math part. I mean, I get the science part. I get the philosophy part. But I just feel like this feels like an exercise to show off that you can handle all of these things. Right, right, right. Um, so I often felt pretty cold by Tom Stoppard. I guess it, I, what I liked about it was just the, the lightness with which he approached lots lots of different subjects. Yeah, that's so, fair. I mean, I, yeah, I, to me, I think the flip side to that, you could see the same thing, and I, whereas you think of its lightness, I think of it as sort of this, like, virtuosic gentleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I've always been a Sondheim fan. You monster. Yeah, I've always been a Sondheim fan, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would say that Into the Woods is probably my favorite musical. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never apologized for that. I always really love that musical. There's something really, because it's really, there's something really sentimental, I think, about yeah, growing yeah. up. Yeah. Um, or having parents not let you grow up. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, my favorite musical is Little Shop of Horrors. So yeah, it's great. It's a great like, musical. Yeah. yeah. I love that music. I think yeah, it's great. Yeah, Music's yeah. good. The story's stupid. It's yeah. wonderful. It's yeah, like yeah, a perfect yeah. piece of art. Right, right, right. Um, you ever seen an opera? I can't stand opera. Yeah, I can't either. I'm yeah. just curious. Like. Yeah, my wife really loves it. And we can't figure out why I don't love it. I think it's... I mean, I have no fucking clue. I don't get it at all. I don't know why. I think it's, it's like much opera. better to listen to on a CD. I don't yeah, want... It's background music. Yeah, Because I don't speak the language. So. I don't speak the language. I think yeah. the language can be really pretty, but I mean, yeah. fundamentally, it's an opera yeah and it's a soap opera without the soap right like i mean so i don't get commercial breaks yeah i don't get like i don't get relatable people i don't get it broken down yeah. it's not about superheroes yeah. like could I, be but yeah. i mean like it's just uh, yeah, deflator mouse yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i guess Fognerian themes yeah. right like but it's 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 something yeah I, i've never been able to get into opera yeah, yeah. you ever seen moonstruck yeah, I love that movie, right? Yeah, and the, the extent to which he mi- loves opera makes me want to love opera. But I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. that way about Pretty Woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so opera, pff, live theater, hooray! Hooray! <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that brings us to yet another of- episode of Room of Requirement. Thanks for listening, everyone. Good luck. Stay strong out there. Yeah. Good luck. Stay strong. And uh, thanks again to Kevin Carter for providing us with our music. Yeah.